At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, movie review, The Cranes Are Flying. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. If you're interested in supporting the podcast or following us on social media, check out our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Hello, Cold War fans. This is producer Dave, and welcome to the movie review of the 1957 Soviet classic, the Cranes Are Flying, by director Mikhail Kalatazov. Like any of our movie review episodes, this is filled with a bunch of spoilers of the movie. So if you want to watch the movie prior to listening to us talk about it, go check it out at your local DVD store, Amazon, or Netflix, wherever you get your movies from. Then come back and join us for the review. So I wanted to give some quick facts about the movie before we jump into reviewing the scenes for it. One of the interesting facts about this movie is it actually won a top prize at the Cannes Film Festival in France in 1958, and it was the only Soviet film to win that award. Um, This film actually represented a big break in Soviet uh, film as it broke with the traditional Stalinist movies uh, of the past – um, this movie actually came out in 1957, so it came out a year after the beginning of de-Stalinization, uh, which began in 1956 with Nikita Khrushchev's secret speech, uh, which basically denounced um, Stalin and this Stalinist period. So in many ways, it is a new film uh, shot in a new way with new themes, um, but in other ways, it's also very classical in, in the Russian context because it deals with many additional traditional themes such as love and war and in many ways uh, harkens back to the great uh, Russian epic um, War and Peace. Yeah, this movie is uh, very much uh, an anti-war movie. Although the movie came out during the – you know after the Stalinist period – um, they still had, you know, obviously Soviet censors, and the media was still controlled controlled in the Soviet Union. Um, but this was still an anti-war movie, and it's also interesting to remember that at this time, the Cold War is obviously still going on, and World War II, and you know, is very much alive in people's memories, and how many people died during that conflict, and this really shows, I believe, how the Russians themselves, the Russian people did not want to enter into another world war 
And, you know, during this period, Khrushchev and Eisenhower are basically having talks and they're trying to find a way, you know, out of the Cold War, um, so to speak. And, you know, in 56, they'd already had a couple close calls. Once again, you know, the, the, the uprising in Hungary, at Hungary in 1956, and they also had the Suez Crisis, um, which potentially could have developed into a world war. Many people at the time worried that they they were going to that these events could these crises could develop into another world war. Um, so this was weighing heavily on people's minds. Uh, there's also an interesting connection with the United States. The director actually spent seven years in L.A. during World War II on diplomatic assignments, and I guess while he was here. Uh, he saw a number of American films or Hollywood films, so that's an interesting connection. Um, obviously, since I'm more familiar, uh, as I think many of the listeners are, with you know U.S. media, um, we're obviously going to do some compare and contrast, you know, with Hollywood and and the Soviet media. So I think those are some very interesting points. It certainly seems like the director had influence from overseas. Um, I was thinking more French. Um, like French New Wave, it has these extreme camera angles, like either extreme close-ups or really far away getting a lot of the scenery and then strange angles. It was it seemed really experimental to me and something that I thought um, I, I knew to expect from Soviet filmmaking, maybe Tarkovsky years later or Einstein uh, maybe in the 1920s, but um, to see... That kind of filmmaking around the time of Stalin was really surprising to me. I thought it would be more propagandistic, shot in a simple and straightforward style. But it seems like they really went for something a little bit more on the experimental side. And it um, it really made the movie a lot more interesting and it uh, moved really well. I was surprised and impressed. No, I totally agree. I thought it was shot in some very interesting angles throughout um, the movie, and that was actually one of the impressions that I had about it. Um, totally. So the opening scene, uh, we see the two young lovers uh, chasing each other um, through the streets of Moscow, which is you know where the the story is taking place, and at least for the very beginning of the story. And you know they are you know they're just having a great time, and they accidentally get sprayed by a street cleaning truck, you know, with water, and you know they're wet, and they look up into the sky and they see these cranes flying through the sky. So the next scene, they sneak into the building, and uh, you know they he chases her up the stairs uh, to get try to get another date for you know for them to meet up again, and then she sneaks into her apartment. You know, they also, it's kind of interesting in the beginning, he calls her Squirrel. And we find out later on that her name is Veronica and his name is Boris. But at first I was like, is that her real name or or is that a pet name? But that is her pet name, uh, which is kind of funny. So, you know, they they ha- they kind of have this connection going on. And then uh, Boris, uh, after she sneaks home, Boris comes home as well. And apparently they've been out all night and he goes to bed. Um, you know, just as the sun is rising and, you you know, obviously have this setup where these two are in love and they've been out all night. Two young people in love. So the third scene is everyone is at breakfast and uh, they talk about the future of the kids. Uh, and we're introduced to uh, Boris's father, who is a doctor. And uh, we we learn that his sister is studying medicine to be a doctor as well. 
Boris himself is it appears he's some kind of drafter or something like that. He, he draws up schematics or blueprints, um, and you know we're, they're talking about how great life is and, and the future that they're going to have. And then uh, you know Boris's cousin is also there, and they you know they hear on the news there's an announcement that the war has begun, right? And everyone's kind of like, oh no. Um, and then, but meanwhile, Boris's cousin, uh, we also see in that scene shortly after, is basically trying to hit on Veronica, um, Boris's girlfriend. Uh, he, he himself also has an interest in her. Two questions and a comment. The comment being, I, I really like the father character, Fedor, the doctor. Um, he's this curmudgeonly older man with an acerbic wit. And he did something that was kind of interesting, I, I thought, in film, when the two girls from the factory, they came and they kind of gave standard Soviet lines about production's going to be so great. And he kind of shoos them away, like, I don't want to hear that nonsense, you know, it's, it's just kind of boring pablum. Basically tells them to shut up, that this stupid kind of um, uh, communist rhetoric that they were giving. How risky was it to put that kind of in film to say, hey, these kind of stupid sayings about how you're going to make so much production? You know, that that's a good question, you know, because those kinds of slogans and, you know, production and those target goals were very much or uh, very important during the Stalinist era. And I think in retrospect, in the de-Stalinization period, you know, the, those they kind of were mocking that or, or, you know, that those kinds of slogans and they kind of saw the falsehood of that. Um, so in a way it's interesting in that the, the, no one really takes it serious, I guess, to a certain extent. And, you know, in this period, I think it was probably safer to kind of make those critiques. And it's not a straight critique. Like you said, it's kind of a sleight of hand critique um, that you really had to pay attention to, to kind of see that. And I think, you know, they were kind of running up to the line with those kinds of critiques about that period, but obviously it wasn't like out there in the front, so they could kind of sneak that by the censors. So I, I thought that that is a good point. I did think that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and the sister being a doctor, was that common for a woman in Soviet Union to be able to be a professional like that, a doctor or lawyer, those types of professions? Yeah, I think it was. There There were women in the Soviet Union who moved into professions. Um, that was not uncommon. You would see professional women that would go into those fields. So the fourth scene is, you know, they're at this, they show Boris again. He's at a work site and he's talking with some of his fellow workers and it looks like they're digging holes. Um, they don't really go into the explaining that part, but there's, you know, factory in the background showing the industrialization that's that has been happening during that time in Russia and, you know, they're talking about whether Boris is going to be called up or not. And, you know, they're saying, you know, well, some of his coworkers are saying, oh, you're a pretty bright guy. You're probably not going to be called up, you know, given your drafting skills. Um, you know, they, they're probably not going to call you up for military service. How many people received exemptions in World War II? Was it something that was kind of common for anybody who was, you know, college educated or was it really kind of a rare privilege? You know, that I honestly could not speak to with authority in regards to the Soviet military. Um, but I will say that 
probably in the beginning there were a number of exemptions, but as the war went on and Russia started to lose hundreds of thousands of people, I would imagine that those exemptions became less and less um, as they needed to fill the ranks. So, you know, there, it's it's probably realistic to show that there were some exemptions in the beginning, um, but obviously as the war went on and Russia had to replace its losses, um, those exemptions, I'm pretty sure, ceased to exist. So the next scene, um, they're, ba- they're back. Uh, it looks like Veronica and, and Boris are in a room together and – they're hanging up some curtains uh, because of air, the air raids potentially that are threatening Moscow. And uh, she tells him about Mark hitting on her, ho- hoping that he would be jealous about this. Um, but he doesn't really seem to be bothered by it. Um, she talks about how she wants to go to art school. And then he makes uh, some comments that seem to imply that she's a bad artist so then they talk a little bit more. She talks about how much they love each other and how they're going to get married in the future. Um, and then their mutual friend, Stephen, busts open all, the door almost like – it reminded me of like of Kool-Aid, man. He just like busts in and <laughs> he tells that, he tells Boris that um, they got orders to report at 5 p.m. And, of course, this is a little distressing because they've already kind of agreed to go get married but now Boris has to report for military service at 5 p.m. And he basically tells her that, you know, because she, she's like, well, you haven't been called up yet. But he's like, no, but I've basically volunteered to go, which he is more or less upset that Boris has decided to volunteer to for the military. So she's obviously disappointed that he's uh, leaving, you know, for war. So then we go to the next scene, and Boris's dad is upset that his son is going off to war, um, but it's sort of you know he's sort of okay with it to a certain extent, and you know but Boris is kind of down because he knows that Veronica is upset with him, and he doesn't think that she's going to show up to see him off, and she doesn't, uh, but she it's not because she didn't try to. She she got in the bus, she tried to meet him before he went off, but she actually arrives late. And she finds that he's marshalling at the schoolyard and that she, and she runs off to see him. But by the time she gets there, it's too late. And he's already marching off and she calls to him, but she can't get his attention. So at this point, Boris actually left this gift uh, for him, her as well, which will be important later on. Um, he left this stuffed animal squirrel for her. Um, and this stuffed animal uh, squirrel has a little basket, and in the basket, underneath the little nuts that are inside of it, is a letter from her, uh, from him for her. And uh, Boris's grandmother gives this doll uh, to Veronica as a as a parting gift, and she's obviously still upset because you know she's like, oh, how could I let him go off to war without saying goodbye? You know, he probably thinks horrible things about me, and you know she kind of really regrets it. In the end of this scene, it shows Mark and Boris walking away in military style. In fact, a little bit later in the movie, um, when Boris is at the train station about to leave, he just slots right in as though he had been uh, in the military service for a significant amount of time, marching in formation. And I was wondering, did they pick up those skills at a younger age, maybe part of... um, some sort of Soviet uh, compulsory military service that they have to do? 
So yeah, many people actually had compulsory military service in the Soviet Union because um, they – and even today or actually in, during the Soviet Union, they had a lot of compulsory uh, conscription. So a lot of people would be conscripted and serve their one or two years and then get out. And like, obviously they're still in their early 20s. Um, so if they got called back up, it wasn't um, it wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, the the Russian army, the Soviet army, played a big de- was a big part of society um, at that time. As were armies across Europe. Um, so you know, at that time, especially in the beginning of the twentieth, by the late nineteenth century, the early twentieth, early twentieth century, mobilization of your population for war. As had been done in World War One and even before that in other wars, um, was something that was unfortunately a regular occurrence. Um, so, societies were built around the ability to mobilize hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of young men in the, in short periods of time, so within you know six months to a year. And you know, armies practiced regularly calling up this amount of troops. So it's not surprising uh, that these guys were already to, already able to perform marches and dress right dress as you saw the you know them getting ready to march off so the next scene we see is it looks like some time's passed since boris has marched off to war it looks maybe a month i want to say or maybe a few weeks and they have not heard anything from uh boris no letters or anything like that so veronica is a little upset about that uh, but she has also decided to work in an armaments factory and she's now taking the uh, subway to work. And the subway also kind of double doubles as a bomb shelter. So at this point, the Germans have began to bomb uh, Moscow and other major cities. And during the bomb raids, people go down into um, the subway, as they did in London, um, to kind of get away from the German bombers. Um, so at one point, you know, she's in the subway, she's on her way home, and her home block gets attacked. Um, but she's in the subway during the attack, so she's safe. Uh, she gets out, she goes to her house, uh, or at this actually an apartment building, and she sees that there's fire trucks around, and she goes into the building, and she starts running up the, the wreckage of the stairs to her apartment. Uh, but when she gets there, uh, she can see that her parents are no longer alive, and the apartment has basically been blown up, minus a clock on the wall. Um, so then Veronica, you know, she's she doesn't have a family anymore. Her family has died, and she actually moves in with Boris's father. The doctor says, you know, you can come and live with us because it was expected. You know, they both knew that they were talking. Boris and her were talking about marriage. Um, so you know, I think Boris's father kind of feels inclined to help her out. So she moves in with them. And, you know, uh, at this point, Boris himself is even in the Russian army as a doctor. And uh, and although uh, it's Fedor, Fedor, you're right. Yeah, it's Fedor. And then also we have Mark is also with them. The, the nephew is also living with them at the apartment. And the doctor or uh, the father makes he sort of makes a mistake. Obviously, he doesn't know that Mark is after her. Um, but he tells Mark, you know, make sure you pay attention to her and stay close to her uh, because, you know, she's really worried about what happened with, with Boris. And me and her sister are really busy. We're, we're at the hospital all hours trying to help people. So Mark is more or less – he's like for sure because he's the, the, the fox in the hen house. 
So then there's a – we see in the next scene there's another air raid, and this time uh, Veronica refuses to go into the subway to get away from the attack, and she wants to stay in the apartment, and Mark is obviously there with her, so he's like, okay, well, I'll stay here with you. And then the attack begins, and the windows are, are broken out, the lights go out, and there's glass all over, and there's kind of like chaos and in this moment, Mark more or less decides that he's going to sexually assault her. Um, you know, they don't really show a rape, um, but I think it's implied because, um, again, this is the 1950s. And even I think in American Hollywood, they wouldn't show something like that. Um, but it's implied because he, he just like stands there and she like hits him 20 times and she tries to get away, but she can't get away. And he kind of just at one point at the end just picks her up and brings her back and she more or less stops fighting against him. So I think it's implied that more or less he raped her. Yeah. And also his eyes gave it away. It was kind of um, he had one of those looks that are reminiscent back to the um, silent film era of like Bella Lugosi or Lon Chaney where he got these this weird look in his eye for a good five seconds on camera. So that I think kind of implies that he's he has some nefarious thoughts going on. So then at this point, we go to the next scene and we flash to what's going on with Boris. Um, so Boris and this, they show him out in the field. He's just like tromping through the mud. And uh, at this point, uh, there's a trifle disagreement between him and another soldier you know they're kind of ribbing on him for you know talking about his girlfriend his future wife and uh he gets in trouble and they send him on this dangerous mission and uh we see he he goes on this mission and then he gets shot and his whole life kind of flashes before his eyes yeah but as he's saving the guy who he got into a fight with and so what you see and, and what they've built him out to be is this great hero type, type character and this all good, um, you know, kind of, it, somebody who doesn't have a lot of depth of personality or not, not a very, um, uh, not a very well-rounded um, character. He's kind of one dimensional. He's just this good force, but uh it has uh, it has that interesting thing which which I see in a, a lot of Chinese movies where you know the guy the guy who always does good and always does the right thing ends up getting killed. I guess it goes back to the whole like the good die young theory. No wonder why I'm getting so old. I, I guess you know I didn't really see him as heroic though. Um, I think it's interesting that you mention heroic because in a way. He almost seems, and I think that there, especially when we talk about the end of the movie, he almost appears to be um, a stand-in for all the Russian guys who did die during the war. He's kind of like an average do-good kind of guy. Like he didn't – when he died, you know, he, he got hit by a stray bullet. He was trying to help a friend by carrying him who he had gotten wounded or he was tired. It wasn't clear to me why that guy needed to be carried, to be quite honest. But he – didn't like rush a machine gun nest with like some grenades tied to him or do anything like crazy, like Rambo stats, like you'd expect a traditional hero to do. He kind of just got killed by accident while trying to help a friend or trying to help his comrade more or less, which 
I think goes to, you know, a lot of people who die in war, unfortunately, like are doing things because they're trying to help their, their fellow soldiers. And it's not even, but it's, it's heroic. The act is heroic in itself, but not as how Hollywood or movies, especially even propaganda movies typically kind of portray those acts of heroism. So in a way it's kind of interesting because it gets into a whole, how do we define heroism? What is heroism? You know, and, and this movie, it's kind of like he did a good act, but he also got killed, you know, randomly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's this kind of self-abdicating person who ends up getting killed. And I, I wonder if maybe I'm extrapolating too much. And But if they say that that's what Russian society was at that time, the person who gives too much gets killed. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's an interesting, you know, what were they trying to say with his death scene? You know, what what, what was the, if there was a kind of, you know, and one thing I was going to mention later, I guess I'll mention it now, which I thought was interesting about the movie is um, you really don't see the enemy in the movie. Um, they talk about the Germans. You obviously see the bombing from the Germans, um, but you don't see them at any point on the, in the film. Um ex- even when he gets shot, there's no – it's just like a random bullet that gets him. There's no kind of contact with the enemy, although they do talk about them. And the other interesting thing is they don't even – they say the word fascist once to describe the enemy. But beyond that, they don't mention Nazis. They don't mention the Germans. It's kind of this ambiguous force that's that's causing Russia problems, which I think is is kind of interesting in the whole conflict. Yeah, it is very interesting. Yeah, and, maybe maybe it is symbolizing something greater. Yeah, and I also think it's also um, like a, again, because I think it goes back to the anti-war message. It's also a, a commentary on what's going on at that period without it being so, because by that I think they are allowing this the the Russian or the Soviet people to think of also about the United States. Because it's not a clear enemy, right? Other than the, them saying that the enemy, since they kind of leave it faceless, it allows people to think of, I guess, the enemy or the opponent in their own time. Yeah, very good point. So in the next scene, we see that uh, Veronica is and uh, the family, they're being evacuated from Moscow to Siberia. Uh, but she is still hoping for a letter from Boris, uh, despite there being no message uh, for quite some time. And then, of course, they receive a letter that uh, Boris is missing in action, unfortunately. But then the, we go to the next scene, and we see that Veronica is now helping in this hospital in Siberia. And there are all these Russian soldiers showing up from the vast battlefields of the Soviet Union who are wounded and they need aid. Um, so she's there working as an, a nurse uh, with her, her I guess, father-in-law and um, – or to-be father-in-law and also uh, with her to-be sister-in-law on what's, what's happening here. And uh, one of the wounded soldiers finds out that his uh, – and I actually I should mention first. I forgot to mention earlier. So Mark – after that weird incident uh, with him raping her, they become married. Uh, he more or less forces her to marry him. So now that they are a married couple, and she is with Mark, and of course, while working at the hospital, 
she finds there's a soldier there who gets a letter that his girlfriend uh, has left him for um, – uh, in the U.S. military, they have a term for this. They call it a Jody, uh, which is a man typically who has not joined the military who it decides to basically hook up with a service member's uh, wife uh, or girlfriend. And so he's obviously he, he gets this letter, this wounded Russian soldier. He's distraught about this. He starts going and having an emotional fit about it. And then uh, the doctor comes over, um, Boris's father, and he has this whole great speech about how this woman's no good and, you know, don't even worry about her. Um, you know, he basically says she's a bitch and he, he tells him to, you know, gather himself together. Of course, Veronica hears all this and she's like, oh, my God, what must they think of me? If, and she feels this social shame of more or less what she's done because she knows that her original boyfriend has basically gone out. And now she's in this horrible relationship with Mark, even though it's kind of against her will. Did they use Siberia as a place that they would send people wounded on the battlefront? It seems like kind of a, kind of a far trek and a dangerous trek to send people who are wounded. You know, I would imagine that they did use uh, Siberia, not depending, I mean, east of, depending, because, you know, Siberia is a large region. So they probably sent them to base camps uh, east of Moscow. And it's not clear, you know, they just say Siberia. It's not clear how far east they went. Um, I would imagine that it doesn't seem too outside the reality that there were a lot of Russian soldiers that were, you know, especially the, the guys in this movie, they're, they're pretty busted up. They don't look like they have minor injuries. So, you know, to, they would transport them back to recuperate because they would need longer times to recuperate before they could go back out to the front. So it doesn't seem too unrealistic. The conditions in Russia at the time with the scarcity that they had, were they able to provide adequate medical care? I think it would depend on the situation and at what point in the war because um, a lot of these were con contextual. So if you got wounded, let's say you were somewhere in Ukraine in 41 or 42 or maybe 43, depending on – again, it would depend on the wounds that you got. You know, you, you might have a better chance than if you were at a place like Stalingrad or if you were at a place – if you were at, like in Leningrad where the city was under siege. So a lot of it was contextual. Uh, you know, the, the medical supplies were always low. Uh, at least always, from what I've read, it always seemed like they were low. It doesn't seem like they're overstock. Um, but, you know, even U.S. medics during World War II would run, would run short on bandages and things like that. Again, a lot of it was contextual. How you got wounded, where you got shot, what you got hit with, um, you know, how close you were to an aid station. So... You know, it was really a throw of the dice whether you were going to make it or not, you know, depending on your injuries. So in the next scene, uh, we see uh, Veronica has heard this horrible – you know, she heard this speech. This speech really affects her that her father-in-law has made. So she runs off. You know, she's running now, and, you know, the cinematography is like shaking as, as it feels like we're running with her. And she gets to this bridge, and you see – a you know, a shot of where she thinks about contemplating jumping off this bridge into an oncoming train and killing herself. 
um, she just can't take it anymore um, because I, you know, she feels a, a certain sense of social shame about hooking up with um, Mark. And also I think that she missed Boris before he left. I think that was something that I always gnawed away at her. And instead, out of the corner of her eyes, she sees that this poor boy almost get, gets hit by a truck and she runs over and grabs him and stops him from being hit. And when she asks the boy what his name is, he says his name is Boris. So obviously there's this connection uh, between you know her almost committing suicide because of Boris and then her finding this young Boris. And she more or less brings this young boy who's lost his parents' home and, and semi-adopts him uh, because you know she feels sorry for him. And she also feels this connection because of her relationship with Boris. I so I, I kind of thought this was cheesy, to, to be quite honest, I, that obviously she'd save this kid and, his, and the kid's name would be Boris. But I guess this is my opinion. If only Anna Karenna found a young boy in front of a carriage before she made her fateful decision. So when Veronica arrives home, she is with this boy. She's also confronted um, by her sister-in-law who basically says that – she says that Mark is cheating on her. And that he's basically with this other woman and they get into this argument. And at one point, Veronica calls her a spinster, which I thought was kind of mean. And <laughs> because the sister has never really quite forgiven her for the things, for what she had did to Boris before he left and not showing up to see him off. So they sort of have bad blood. And then we see from there, Veronica leaves to go ahead and confront her husband who's at this party uh, with his, with I guess this is mistress, and he's decided to to also steal uh, the the squirrel uh, doll or stuffed animal that Boris had given to her as a gift, uh, and just, he wants to to give it to some some kid at this party, um, sort of to gain more political influence with somebody's whose kid this happens to be, um, and so they go. She he brings the doll, and then they find this note in the doll. Uh, from Boris to um, Veronica that was originally put in there that uh, that they everyone at the party starts reading. So then uh, Veronica, she she confronts, um, you know, Mark at the party. She finds the letter. She reads this letter from Boris that he originally wrote to her a couple of years ago now when he initially left, you know, first left. And this kind of gives her – you know, some confidence back and, and the love, the relationship that they had. And then she basically slaps Mark and is like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Like I'm leaving. And she, and she goes, um, and she goes back to the house. And then of course, then we find out in the, in the following scene that Mark, who originally said that he got a exemption from military service because of his great piano playing skills is actually he's a draft dodger. He paid someone off and used his uncle's name uh, as a as a prominent doctor to kind of get him out of the draft. But of course, as we said before, with the cost, you know, the human cost of the war, exemptions started to be fewer and fewer. And we find out that his exemption is about to run out. And the gentleman that he worked the original deal with approaches um, his his uncle unbeknownst to him and explains, well, I'm going to need more from you, another bribe to keep your nephew from going to the front. And of course, 
the uncle is totally unaware of this and he's basically shamed um, that Mark would basically skip out from his military service. And he basically then comes back and confronts Mark and more or less kicks him out of the house. We get to see Mark in his element in this scene. He's in a smoky bar playing the piano, enjoying himself like it's the Roaring Twenties. But of course it's not. Many of his Russian compatriots are in the front lines fighting um, a war really for life or death consequences. I'm sure that's not lost on the audience. And yet he's there playing the piano man um, like a Cole Porter. And I can see that uh, a lot of people in the audience would be very frustrated by a person like that. I thought this was a really interesting scene to have in the movie really saying that, yes, we have corruption here in the Soviet state and that uh, this person has been, you know, that people were able to pay their way out of being able to serve. And to to put that in a movie that where a lot of people are going to have obviously very strong feelings about that, why... Um, uh, why do you think it was important that the Soviet state be able to show something like that or be able to talk about that sort of subject at that time? Because I couldn't imagine Stalin allowing anything of that sort to be to be even introduced in a public discourse. I wasn't too surprised at it because you always need to have a bad guy. I am, you know, even in Soviet films. So you know, this guy is a shirker you know he's shirking his military duty and he's allowing others to take his place notably his um his cousin who volunteered to go uh in his stead and obviously we we saw you know you know we at this point we saw that boris has been shot we don't know if he's dead or not in the movie but we obviously see that he's been shot um i think you know the other interesting thing about the movie as a soviet movie is that you know, especially Soviet movies before this were very collective. It was about the group, you know, group cohesion, which is which is important. Um, but it's this movie is also very much about individuals, and we see the choices that individuals are making. It focuses on the choices of those individuals as they kind of go through. So in many ways, it's it's I sometimes forget that it's a kind of communist thought out movie, and but you kind of also see. Which I think, which is realistic to life, you see this um, the push and pull between the needs of the individual and the needs of the nation or the community. And I think uh, Mark here is certainly he. This is a point where I think the film is saying that individuality has gone to an extreme and it's bad, and that Mark has betrayed the rest of his community, his nation. Uh, and the collective in basically being shirking his duty. And of course, people knew that this happened, so it wasn't a big secret. Um, but it, it obviously tarred these people in a negative light um, and that they were not fulfilling their duty to their nation. Well, yeah, obviously, as um, Mark to as the briber, but uh, also as the Soviet official, as the bribee, to be able to influence in that way. Hmm. To showing these these Soviet officials, these people who are representing the state, and their failings as well. Yeah, I guess you 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 
you could I definitely you could definitely see it in that light. I think though the way that they could get it past Soviet censors would be like, well, you know, we have to have an antagonist or a, a bad guy and you know, he'd obviously have to, you know, so I think it kind of worked with the storyline, so I think that's why I would imagine that the Soviet censors let it through it was because it you needed to kind of have the foil to to against, you know, because basically you have two foils, you have um or one foil, you you have Boris, who's the stand-up Soviet citizen, right? And then you have the exact opposite of that, who's like this, you know, who, you know, Boris works in a factory, you know, he, he, he volunteers for service. And then you have this like petty bourgeois piano playing guy who is a coward, who's shirking his military duty is like the exact opposite of, you know, what the ideal Soviet citizen should be. In the next scene, we have a soldier shows up at the house, um, that uh, Veronica and Boris's family now live in, and he is there. He he tells you know Veronica's like, well, who are you? Who are you looking for? He says he's looking for Boris's father. He wants to talk to him about how Boris has died, and unannounced, he doesn't know that Veronica is obviously his ex girlfriend. He explains to her how you know Boris has been killed in, in the war. Yeah, I thought it was really well done the way that it showed her how difficult it was for her emotionally when she walked out of the room and she, uh, it was subtle and, uh, it wasn't her bursting out into tears. She just kind of subtly walked out of the room, frustrated look in her face. And at the same time, you knew that her complete world had just evaporated in that moment. So the next scene is, um, back in Moscow and it's you know the, I, the war has come to an end, um, and but she still refuses to believe that Boris has died because nobody saw the body; they just saw him get shot, so they didn't necessarily see if he was nece- dead or not. Um, so she still holds out hope that you know maybe he's still alive and maybe he can come back to me. So you know she goes to the train station and they have the Soviet troops who are coming home, you know, the victors of the war. And while she's there, you know, she rushes, she's going through the crowds of these demobilized troops and she's trying to find, you know, see if she can see Boris, um, but she doesn't see him. And then she meets his, you know, her friend, their their mutual friend from way back when, Stephen, uh, who's like, yeah, you know, Boris has been dead. I'm sorry to tell you. And, you know, that basically crushes her. And then, you know, she runs into her father-in-law who more or less comforts her. And, you know, it's also – it's interesting in that scene because, you know, the initial thought in my mind was, you know, well, he could still be alive because, you know, millions of Soviet troops were demobilized. But millions more were not demobilized and were kept on active duty in Eastern Europe. So theoretically, he could have still been alive, but just never wrote home uh, because he was ticked with her, <laughs> which I thought would have been a funny alternative ending, I guess, if you wanted to redo the movie. And he could have come back in the 1950s or maybe the 1960s and just she would have never known. Um, but obviously, that's not how it turned out. Um, you know, she waits for him. She, she basically comes to term with the fact that he has died. And that he's not returning, and you know that she had brought flowers. She gives those flowers away to 
other people in the crowd, other other returning soldiers, and there's a speech um, by Stephen, his former friend, more or less about the horrors of war, and it's it's a very anti-war kind of speech, talking about the losses that the Soviet people suffered during the war, and you know, again, it's estimated that the Soviet Union lost some 24 million people in World War II, and even to this day. You know the the Russian population it has more women than men because they did lose so many men that that demographically the society is unbalanced. It just I think in many ways it it goes to what was the experience of many Russian women unfortunately during the war. So I think the movie really talked to, and of course at that point too we should remember that night because this movie came out in 1957. You know, the war was not was still within living memory. It was still fresh for many Soviet citizens, so many people could very much relate to this film. And it was kind of an every woman's kind of film, every Soviet woman's kind of film. I, I could feel, and that many Russian women must have experienced this, unfortunately. Um, and you know, so also at the end, you know, she looks up and she sees the cranes. Um, flying, and it's kind of, you know, I guess I read later on that some people say that the the cranes flying represent her hopes and dreams. So in the beginning, you know, when they saw the cranes flying at the beginning of the movie, it was more represented her hopes and dreams about the life she would build with Boris. And the cranes at the end of the movie more or less represent the new hopes and dreams of the Soviet Union in rebuilding the society after the war, she kind of has let his proverbial ghost go. And, you know, it's about trying to move on from the horrors of the war at that point. Unfortunately, what we know about Moscow doctors, it doesn't look very good for Fedor in his near future. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. So, yeah, I just had some final thoughts about my general impressions about the movie. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about how Germany is never mentioned in the film. Um, the other interesting thing that I think, which is, which makes sense because it's taking place in the, during de-Stalinization, but also is deeply historically inaccurate, is that there is no mention of Stalin, nothing at, throughout the entire movie. Um, and it's almost as if... It, this war happened in a completely different society than the Soviet Union that existed in 1941. Um, so I think, you know, granted they weren't trying to make a historically accurate movie. I think it was, was a love movie. This was, this was more of an emotional kind of movie touching on those emotions that the Soviet people had in the aftermath of the war. But I do think that it's kind of interesting that, you know, especially today, I don't know if you, if you watch any kind of even modern or current day Russian depictions of World War II, you know, Stalin, and that it's very, I, th I would say, more historically accurate in terms of the way that they view the war. Um, so I thought that was kind of strange that he's not even mentioned, although I get it, but it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I saw this film maybe 15 years ago, and I was in my mid-20s, and I remember thinking that it was a boring film, and I think seeing it with more mature eyes, and I'm also more boring as I got older, but I, I thought it was a great film. It's, there's a lot of elements that you can really enjoy the multidimensional heroine character, you know, the, the woman who, you know, our lead, the squirrel, uh, 
the way that she changes in the movie, the way that um, she kind of comes from, you know, happy and love to losing everything. So that arc of she thinks she everything's going great, but then this problem comes in, she dips down low, and then she rebuilds herself through finding that actually, you know what, what we knew before was kind of BS. And, and, and the way that I looked at it was happy and optimistic, but maybe there's something more realistic about how I should be living my life. And I had all these, you know, girl dreams, you know, this girlish dreams about what life was going to be like, but now there's some more realistic dreams of actually helping out the other person. How can I be useful? And she had these, this kind of unrealistic fantasy that Boris was going to come back. But actually the realistic thing was here. I got all these great Russian people who just went through this horrible thing that we all went through. And how can I give to these people and comfort and, and really be happy that, Hey, we, we survived this thing. Yes. I can be very upset and sad, but how can I be more useful? You know, the one thing I did like about the Veronica story, and I guess this is just, is that Boris, and it's sad, but I think it's that's realistic and it goes to the whole point of the movie, is that Boris doesn't come back. You know, I cannot imagine a Hollywood movie doing that. Um, if this movie had been made in the United States in the 1950s and the movie was about some Marine that had gone off to fight in Okinawa, I feel that there would have been like a mix up and then the guy would have stepped off the train and then she would have been like, Oh, and everything would have been fine. And I think it's, it goes to the difference and kind of the U S and maybe Russian psyche that, and especially it may be even more so about how both societies experienced world war two that, you know, in the Soviet union, he doesn't come back, which, which is, was a reflection of the truth. And I thought that was a very powerful message and I liked I, I unfortunately sadly I liked that ending because I thought it gave more light into what was happening at that time. I think you may be forgetting about the namesake or the film of the namesake of our local airport, John Wayne's Sands of Iwo Jima, where Stryker ends up getting killed. But I suppose if it was a love story, yeah, I think you're probably right. Well, I think the other thing that I thought was interesting about the movie was they have this uh, – before the movie, especially, you know, there's this – they almost have like an uh, antebellum, like idealistic life before the beginning of the war, right? And it, it kind of reminds me of Gone with the Wind in a sense and both <laughs> – both kind of narratives of, of – pre-war South or pre-war Soviet Union kind of like gloss over or don't even mention like what was happening at that time, you know, for this story, you know, there's obviously, you know, and they had the terror and everything else that was going on. I mean, the Soviet Union was not, at least in my mind, what I read was not people running around and red square in love, like everyone's happy. You know, that wasn't, especially given the contrast of the last movie we lost, we watched with death of Stalin and how they were showing, you know, the arrests, the executions, the people living in fear. You know, this family are not living in fear. But doesn't the West really just want to highlight the 
negative aspects of the Soviet state or the NKVD knocking on your door at night and those kind of bad aspects. But I think the lived experience for many Russians is probably, and especially young Russians, is, you know, going into the square and, you know, falling in love and being able to talk and be vulnerable and and those kind of moments that you would see. I think Solzhenitsyn would beg to differ. I mean, there, there's, I mean, there's a lot of Russians who, who, who write. I mean, Charleston Ethan being one of the most prominent ones who, you know, write and talk about that time and about, you know, the gulag and everything else. Um, you know, so contrasted it with Gone with the Wind, right? Because Gone with the yeah. Wind, you know, they make the South and slavery seem like, uh, you know, like everyone was kind of here by mutual choice, right? And they kind of gloss over the horrors of slavery. Um, but I guess that that's that does happen in American film. That happens in, in a lot of different film. But I think in this case, I thought it was interesting that they had this very idyllic Soviet lifestyle before the beginning of the war, which obviously to me and my my insight was that's not how it was. Okay, but but perhaps if you live through the the extreme chaos of World War Two, you would look at pre-world war ii and go you know isn't this nice it's like uh yeah maybe they look back on it and go yeah it wasn't that quaint i only had one of my family members die that year instead of half my family members that died during world war ii i guess <laughs> i think it, i mean i again i guess it all depends on perspective like where you were at those specific times um Maybe maybe you could look back on pre-war Soviet Union more idyllically than you could during the war or, or even immediate post-war. But, you know, I think it was no picnic beforehand either. The other interesting thing I thought in the movie in terms of things that aren't there is like there's no real talk about communism. Right. There was no I, – I guess I was just so brainwashed watching other Soviet films or – I mean, again, I haven't watched every Soviet film. But I was just waiting for like this – you know, the talk about how communism is great and you know how we're working together or something like that, and it just never happened. Um, I think there were sleight-of-hand hints at it here and there, um, but there wasn't really – you know, in some ways it's interesting. I felt at times – that the movie was made to to be able to to be able to be shown in, in, in other countries because it was so kind of like this is a story this is about these people you know there was no kind of overarching I mean I didn't even see the Soviet flag at any point in the movie yeah that's true was it something uh, I mean I I did see I think Fedor had some pins um so I did see the hammer and sickle. But yeah, that does bring up a very good point. Was this something that uh, are they trying to compete with the hearts and minds of the world? And they're saying, you know, if we show just basic propaganda, people aren't going to take us seriously. We need to show a real film, something that people are going to find interesting. And then this is going to be part of that kind of culture wars that we're fighting globally against the United States. We need to do something of higher quality and something that's going to be um, – have more of a message and resonate more with audiences. You know, that's true. I mean, especially uh, at that point in 1956, uh, 57, you know, that was the big, I mean, the, the plan 
was that the Soviet Union would no longer would not fight the West in a all out military conflict, right? What Nikita Khrushchev talked about was outproducing, out, you know, basically outproducing. They would grow a bigger economy than the West and then just subsume the West, right? Because the Soviet Union at that point was saying socialism is a superior system. We should be able to compete against the capitalist nations. So, in many ways, this movie, I guess, it could be made or seen rather as an attempt to co- to compete with Hollywood, right? Like, how do we produce movies that are just as loved, just as um, enticing as Western movies around the world, right? And maybe they were thinking by this focus on the individual and getting to know who these characters are, uh, you know, that this movie is very more like a Hollywood movie than it, it was like the Stalinist movies that had come out in the Soviet Union before that, which made it more competitive in other arca- uh, markets. Uh, I think the other thing is that I read about the cranes as they, you know, they, they focus on them at the beginning and the end is that I read elsewhere when doing research about the movie that some people say that the cranes also um, reflect or contrast the hopes and dreams of peace with the German bombers, which brought death and destruction. Um, even though you don't, I guess my only critique of that was that you don't at any point see the German bombers. They just kind of happen, right, when they blow up uh, Veronica's family. The other thing is, too, is it, it, to talk about um, Veronica as well and that, you know, some people believe that the movie is, in essence, a film about Veronica's kind of uh, fall and redemption, right? So in the beginning of the movie... Yeah, I can see that. She, uh, she feels guilt about missing Boris, um, which leads her down a dark path, and eventually she ends up with... Um, uh, mark which is pretty much her low point right and then she kind of it's almost like dante's inferno if you will or a shortened version and then from there she when she finds boris's letter she kind of starts digging herself or maybe not yeah not not boris's letter necessarily i take that back when she saves the boy named boris that's the first step of her rebuilding her life rebuilding her her identity and then she kind of goes from there to, to rebuild her life. And she's finally – she's reborn again when she sees the cranes and kind of decides to move on with her life. So, you know, and the, the film isn't really critical. There's no internal monologues. There's no voiceovers. So it doesn't really give you, uh, as a viewer, any kind of way to look at Veronica because she is primarily the main character. Right. And it's kind of, you know, lets you decide how you feel about her. Right. And how you feel about the actions she took. There's no kind of uh, overall or monologue about how she's a good or a bad person. It's kind of, it just, it is what it is. Right. And you kind of have to make your decision, which is, I guess, I kind of like that about the film. You, you, You kind of have to make a decision about, you know, do you like this person? And then everyone's motives. I mean, people come out and talk about their motives a little bit, but again, there's no internal monologue or anything else. So we don't know, you know, sometimes why people are doing what they're doing. To your point earlier, 
that the Russian people and their lived experience, they're going to find some sort of connections there that maybe, you know, we're missing. I think especially with um, this idea of, of Boris being this honorable person dying, she gets married to this guy. It's kind of an interesting jujitsu move in the movie where he sexually assaults her and then she marries him. So I, I was kind of confused as to why she, she made that move. Yeah. I suspect that she's going to have a lot of rather uncomfortable. How did you know when he was the one conversations? Yeah, I was totally confused why she made that move as well, and I was trying to understand it because to to me, I was like, well, the, the director must be trying to make some kind of social commentary by having her marry him. That was what I got out of it because I can't imagine she would feel compelled to marry this guy after that a sexual assault or and or rape. Um, so I just couldn't understand – you know, maybe it was part of it. She just gave up on, she wanted to try to give up on Boris because she, she or she felt she's herself. She, or I guess my only other thought is she felt that she was such a bad person for not having seen him. And she worried that he died without not having known that she loved him, that she more or less wanted to punish herself. And it was like a destructive move psychologically. And that's why she agreed to it. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah, I guess she was just in a nihilistic mode and at that point where they asked her to go down to the subway, the bomb shelter. She didn't want to do it. And so she she ended up getting assaulted by this guy. I guess my original thought was that, oh, maybe she's pregnant or something like that. But uh, I guess that turns out not to be the case. Yeah, cause she doesn't have a baby or anything later on. So I, w- I guess I would just say that, you know, and just in some final thoughts summing up this movie, uh, it was an interesting watch, um, mostly because I knew the history around it. And I think actually uh, listening to this, you might want to go back and watch it because you might get a little bit more out of it. Um, but watching it the first time through, you know, to me, I, I didn't really find it an exciting movie. I mean, if you're looking for a war movie, don't watch this. That's all I gotta say. Do, if you're if you're into war movies, this is not the movie for you. Stay ten thousand miles away from it. This is not that kind of movie. Um, what it is is basically just a love story, and it's a it's a movie that speaks to the female Russian experience, I guess, to a certain extent in World War II. Um, although there were many, uh, you know, Russian women that fought in World War II as well, so so many were not on the home front. And you know, I guess my question is, you know, how does this movie square with their life experience of World War II? Because again, many women, uh, Russian women, fought or Soviet women fought in World War II, and I'm sure that their experiences were very different and more akin to their male counterparts than the females in this movie who basically stayed behind the lines. Yeah, that's very true. And I wonder, and you actually make a good point about the demographics that actually maybe, you know, demographically, most of the people who are going to be in the audiences to watch the, watch the film are going to be women, you know, maybe the population at the time, I don't know what the, Actual statistics are, but maybe yeah, 75%. So I, I, yeah, I looked at the statistics for today, 
and um, it's actually there's 86 Russian men for every 100 Russian women. And a large part of that discrepancy demographically is still the result of World War II um, and how many Russian men were basically killed, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, you can imagine that the movie-going audience in the Soviet Union was, was probably heavily female, um, so they were lo- making movies that kind of appealed to appeal to them. And I think this I, – I would be interested to see. I don't know you know, how the movie theater system worked in the Soviet Union, um, but what ticket sales were like around this feature. I mean I would imagine it was probably a very popular film in the Soviet Union. I know for like art critics or you know, students of art or you know, film students, this movie, from what I understand, is like one of the top recommended Soviet-era films. I agree. I think it's a well-made, interesting film made by a talented director. Russians have had many talented directors. But you can see how it's it's this change from the Stalin era and this kind of midway point, um, breaking out, creating this kind of new form of art, and then hearkening in, you know, the 70s when they're able to get really avant-garde and and do some really interesting stuff, of course, highlighted by Andrei Tarkovsky. So this is a, uh, I think it's a really good film. It is a little bit slow. There's not as much uh, violence and hand-to-hand combat. It's more psychological, but I think you'll find that with a lot of Russian films that uh, at least the really good ones tend to be more psychologically focused. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, too, you have to take into account that it is a product of its time. I mean, even American, some many American movies from the 1950s are not, you know, fast-paced or action-packed. Um, you know, so it is from a different era. Um, so, I, you know, I, I again, it wasn't my favorite movie. Um, but if you're interested in the Soviet Union, you're interested in Soviet film, I would definitely check it out. Very good. Thank you for listening to Movie Review 2. The cranes are flying. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you enjoy the film. If you're looking for more Cold War content, or if you want to have any questions or comments, please join us at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. While there, check out our previous episodes. Or you can donate and help us keep the podcast going. We have links on the website to all of our social media, including Facebook and Twitter. And we'd love to hear your questions or comments you have for a movie review too. The Cranes Are Flying. And of course, while on the website, please fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.